Welcome to Subscribing to Wellness, the show where Rachel Newman and myself, Daniel Fairman, sit down with leading founders, executives, and investors committed to building a healthier future for consumers. Hey listeners, I just wanted to quickly mention my favorite hydration supplement element. Hydration is a crucial part of life, and it isn't just about drinking water. Being optimally hydrated is actually about optimizing your body's fluid ratios. This fluid balance depends on many factors, including the intake and excretion of electrolytes. Electrolytes are charged minerals that conduct electricity to power your nervous system. They also regulate hydration status by balancing fluids inside and outside your cells. Current science points to consuming four to six grams of sodium, three to 0.5 to five grams of potassium, and 400 to 600 milligrams of magnesium per day from diet and supplements for optimal health outcomes. It can be hard to consume these ranges from whole food diets, especially sodium. Element was formulated with a science-backed electrolyte ratio 1,000 milligrams of sodium, 200 milligrams of potassium, and 60 milligrams of magnesium. Just as important as what is put in element is what is left out. Dodgy ingredients and public health enemy number one, sugar. I've been consuming the product for about a year and absolutely love it. And if you want to get started today, you should go to drinkelement.com slash subscribing to wellness for a special introductory deal on your first order. That's drinkelement, L-M-N-T, dot com slash subscribing to wellness. You won't regret it. Today on Subscribing to Wellness, we are joined by Kevin Lee, co-founder of IMI. IMI reinvents the delicious Asian American foods we love with added nutrition. The company created the world's first low-carb, high-protein, and 100% plant-based instant ramen. Each serving of IMI is 5 grams of net carbs, 22 grams of protein, 19 grams of fiber, and 35% lower in sodium. IMI was founded to help those who suffer through chronic health conditions from poor nutrition and unhealthy diets. So I know there are a million protein powders on the market these days, but when I tell you that this protein powder is my absolute favorite, I mean it. Sprout Living makes plant-based protein powders that help support my active lifestyle. Sprout Living only uses real, powerful superfood adaptogens and nootropics. Their blends are not only tasty, but also functional. No gums or thickeners like most protein powders use. No natural flavorings, just the whole real deal ingredients. My personal favorite is the vanilla leucoma. Head over to go.sproutliving.com backslash subscribing to wellness and use code SUB2PROTEIN for 20% off your order. Kevin, welcome to subscribing to wellness. Thanks for having me. We're super pumped to be chatting with you. So let's take things back. You know, ramen, one of the probably most popular foods out there. Like, tell me a little bit about like your initial interaction with ramen and the food and how it came to be. Yeah, I grew up, I was, a, I was born in California, um, but I spent most of my childhood actually out in Taiwan. Uh, my grandparents are produce farmers out there. They grow something called a rose apple. And my parents uh, are immigrants from Taiwan. And one of the things that a lot of these Asian immigrants do is while they're trying to make a life in America, they'll typically like send the baby back to live with their grandparents for a while just to, so they don't have to focus on that um, while they're trying to just figure out how to survive here. So I think in most Asian countries, instant ramen is not like a snack or anything like that. It's a meal that you would eat, you know, up to like four times a day sometimes. Um, so it would, it's very common 
uh, just, you know, for either my grandma or my parents to just give me like instant ramen to make myself. And it's just so easy. You can't really screw it up as a, as a child. Like you can either throw it in the microwave, you can throw it in a, on the stovetop, um, just with some water and it's good to go. So it kind of became that food that was the default. Hey, we got like, you know, your parents or your grandparents are busy. Just, this is like what you can make. It's super comforting. It's delicious. Um, you don't have to really think much about it and you can add your own toppings like an egg or, you know, anything else you want to add tofu. Um, so that was, that was my history with ramen growing up. History of the ramen. Okay. So you start eating ramen at a really young age, fast forward, fast forward a little bit of time. Did you see like a gap in what was kind of being offered to consumers on like an instant ramen basis, um, from either like a health perspective or just like offerings in general? Yeah. It's not something I actually noticed much growing up. Um, I would say that it's probably not until like college timeframe. Um, I think I was, you know, I was listening to like the Jason Carp episode and it sounded like, sounded like he had some health issues, like pretty serious health issues growing up. I think fortunately, maybe I just got lucky with genetics. I didn't have any life-threatening or even just like chronic health conditions that for example, my grandparents or parents have, um, my grandmother, for example, she is pre-diabetic. She's, um, she had a stroke um, from hypertension, a, you know, a few years ago. Um, she's paralyzed from waist down. Um, both my parents take medication for high blood pressure. They have their whole life. I think, fortunately for me, I just haven't had those chronic health issues, and um, I never really noticed that things that I were eating was affecting my health as as prominently as people in my direct family. But I think as you as you grow older, you graduate college, you just start to become more aware of what you know what you eat and how it affects you. And instant ramen, it's kind of one of those obvious things where you talk to anyone in the street, they'll probably be like, "Oh my god, yeah, I've probably had instant ramen when I was a poor college student or maybe as a child." But I just stopped eating it because it's so bad for you. And the funny thing is, everyone immediately jumps to like, "It has so much salt or it has so much sodium." And yes, they. I think that is a pretty like horrible thing. But there's just so many other things people don't realize about instant ramen. Like one is that not is not only are is there a lot of sodium, but usually the seasoning packets are just filled with preservatives and like random additives and colorings. Um, also, like the instant ramen noodle bricks that you eat, um, they're just it's pretty much just enriched wheat flour. Like there's nothing else about it. So naturally, as a white carb, like you're going to typically you will spike your blood glucose. Um, so it's pretty bad for m- metabolic health in general and these are just like some of the things we noticed about instant ramen where it was invented really by Momofuku Ando like 50 years ago as a way to solve world hunger because Japan had this food crisis and food shortage post-World War II. And I think the world has just like evolved a lot since then where now it's not necessarily like hunger perhaps. Like I think there is issues, like probably more of a distribution issue, but I think people are more aware of their health, especially in first world countries. And it's more about providing nutritious foods um, versus just like, let's fill my stomach with something. So you guys, I mean, you guys are capturing two incredible trends here, right? Plant-based and just the boom of Asian inspired foods right in the US right now. Um could you talk a little bit about the challenges of formulating a ramen noodle that was plant-based? Um, obviously, tons of plant-based alternatives to proteins, and, and people are going after different kind of protein formats to create those products. But how did you guys go about creating something that literally replicates the experience, the mouthfeel, the texture of a 
of a regular ramen noodle, but doing it from a plant-based perspective. Did you have to work with food scientists? Did you guys already have an idea in your head or how did that go? Yeah, it's actually super funny. And I bring this up a lot because I've noticed the industry, um, whether that's like investors or like other founders, um, some customers, they'll dwell a lot on actually the plant-based element. And it's funny because most of the R&D that we took over the two two plus years was actually on the low carb element of our product. So our ramen is the world's first low carb, high protein and fully plant-based instant ramen as, as you've both called out. But um, creating a noodle that is low carb while still retaining that you know, that elasticity, the chew, the texture, mouthfeel, slurpability of a regular noodle is very difficult. Um, and there aren't a lot of alternatives in the market right now for like a noodle that is both low carb and high protein. So I think that's the first thing that I love just like calling out because it's so funny how like everyone ignores like the low carb piece and they just jump straight to the plant-based. But um, to your point, Daniel, about plant-based, I think what like a lot of customers typically are like, you know, we'll see sometimes in the ads, people be like, wait, noodles are already plant-based. Like, why is yours so special? And we we usually have to just respond and help educate and say, well, if you look at all the traditional instant ramen brands, almost a hundred, like, I don't, I don't want to say hundred, like 90% of them use meat-based ingredients in the seasoning packets. And that's actually where the innovation was, was mm-hmm. we took a look at that seasoning packets and we said, well, we can replicate a lot of these meat-based flavors with plant-based ingredients. Um, think like mushrooms, yeast extracts, like, um, you know, other organic, all natural ingredients. And, you know, we can broaden that audience where anyone and everyone, regardless of your eating lifestyle, you can finally have ramen because normally you wouldn't be able to eat the meat-based ingredients in those seasoning packets. So that's just like the first thing to clarify. I think from an R&D perspective, Again, I think the reason why it took so long was because in those first few years, uh, when we talked to a lot of the experts, the food scientists, the PhDs, a lot of them just didn't believe that you could get a an instant ramen that had all of those value props. Like they said, okay, maybe you can get high protein. Like, And I think there's plenty of high protein alternatives. You have the bonzas of the world. Or maybe you can do gluten-free, right? Which is pretty common with like rice-based noodles. Um, but to have a low-carb, high-protein noodle is very difficult first and foremost and then the like seasoning packets i think the plant-based um element of that that definitely took some time um just working with a lot of like flavor specialists working with flavor houses um to get those precise like like black garlic chicken that's not a flavor you would expect to create in a plant-based format Um, or like spicy beef or even tom yum shrimp um but that just took a lot of experimentation and um i think we were very fortunate to have the seasonings be much quicker to develop. And the noodles was something where my co-founder and I actually, because we kept getting turned down by a lot of the experts in the industry, we just said, all right, screw it. Um, We have really nothing to lose and we're super naive about this industry. Let's just try creating it ourselves. So you might imagine like the first thing you would do is like, if you didn't know anything about the industry is uh, we went on YouTube and we literally YouTubed how to make like ramen noodles or like ramen noodle factory. And we would just stare at like the process and write down notes. And then we graduated from that to reading research papers where we found all of these like Asian, like Japanese and Chinese research papers. And we literally used Google translate and like the help of my dad to help translate some of these research papers. And then we started just experimenting and we even bought like ingredients from Amazon, which is kind of hilarious. I know a lot of food founders do that because um, if you're listening, 
if you're a food founder, what you don't realize probably is you can actually email or cold call a lot of these supplier ingredient suppliers. And if you tell them that you are a food company founder, they will literally mail you ingredients for free because they're trying to win your business in the long term. We had no idea we could do that. So we were just like buying ingredients and like waiting for them to ship off of Amazon. Um, so we tested like 200 different ingredients. We were testing all these different proteins. Um, and it was only after like coincidentally, like 200 iterations that we finally got to a formulation we were somewhat happy with. And then that was where we kind of hit this like local maximum of our own quote unquote food science knowledge, which we really didn't have any. And we ended up finding um, some advisors, like a chef advisor, um, a food science PhD advisor. And that helped us break past that local maximum and figure out how to create the first version of Imi. This is Caroline from the subscribing to wellness team. I work on content and I couldn't be more excited to share with you all my incredible experience with Inside Tracker from a blood biomarker perspective. I'm obsessed with Inside Tracker because without access to your own biomarkers, it's impossible to have that pulse check on how you're actually doing health-wise, how to improve for the sake of your health today and 20 years into the future, and if your current style of living is actually working for you. The first time I did Inside Tracker, they helped me realize I had elevated creatine kinase, a marker of excess muscle inflammation due to overtraining, and low ferritin, a marker of your iron stores. By using their action-oriented educational portal, I was able to get both of these markers back into the green by changing my exercise routine and taking a liquid iron supplement. My energy levels and performance in the gym are so much better now, and I couldn't be more pumped about it. If you want to try Inside Tracker out for yourself, you can use my code by visiting insidetracker.com slash sub2wellness to get 20% off. That's insidetracker.com slash sub2wellness. I can't wait to hear what you think. That's pretty cool. I kind of, I'm curious. So you, you touched a lot on this, the plant-based and these, your uniqueness of flavors that typically consumers would think of as not being plant-based. And I feel like a lot of times consumers think of ramen as these like rich meaty pork broths. And, and that's like where their mind goes. So what are you guys doing from like a consumer education mindset perspective of like, this is ramen. These are all the things that are, this is now like a better version of what you love, but the taste is this, like, how are you getting that across to the consumer in a way that like makes them still want it, but it's not me. It is actually a very tricky problem. And I'm glad you called that out, Rachel, because you will like, we often find that there's these diehard ramen enthusiasts who will like sometimes send us emails. It's very rare, but we'll get them once in a while where they're like, this is not ramen. Like your noodles, like traditional ramen will use like something called consue, which is this alkaline solution that helps noodles become a lot more springy and bouncy. And it's like a must have if you're creating traditional like Japanese ramen noodles. We don't use that. And one of the reasons we don't use that is because in the US, like a lot of manufacturers just don't allow that ingredient. Um, we manufacture everything internationally now, but it was like, we had to deal with all sorts of constraints in the early days um, as like a US-based company. And it wasn't just like the noodles. It was even just the fact that we're trying to create like a low carb, high protein noodle. You're going to have ramen enthusiasts who are just like, how is that ramen? Like, what is that? That's not even a noodle. Um, and then for the ingredients, you're totally right. Like most, if not all brats, like I just came back from my two week honeymoon in Japan and I had a shit ton of ramen and it was amazing. And like all of them, of course, are stewing like pork bones and like 
or, you know, you have like even fish-based broths, which are becoming a lot more popular, but a lot of them are using meat um, for up to 72 hours and we're not doing any of that. So it is a tricky problem. I think, again, though, what we've come to realize is we are not trying to be a traditional instant ramen brand. Um, I think, you know, one of my favorite uh, mission, I don't know if it's a mission statement or it's like a statement that one of my close friends, Jing over at Fly by Jing uses is it's not traditional, but personal. And I think that's really, really important, um, especially for me and my co-founder, because we're not trying to create a traditional instant ramen. And if we were, we would just be doing like a delicious instant ramen that has no health benefits, but that's not going to move the needle with really like enriching people's health worldwide, um, which is a core mission for us because of what we've seen in our direct families. So we always say like, look, we are Asian, Asian American, like inspired, but ultimately my co-founder and I were still born in the U S with American values and we have an Asian heritage. That's what we were culturally like raised with. And I think that gives us a unique advantage because we are able to blend those two where you'll see these authentic Asian flavors that um, like spicy beef, that sounds, it might sound generic, but it's actually like Taiwan. It's their national pastime dish is Taiwanese spicy beef noodle soup. It's what I grew up eating my entire life. And it's one of my favorite dishes for K Chan. My co-founder, I call him K-Chan. We just append our last name. So I'm Kaylee, he's K-Chan. <laughs> I was going to um, say, just, he's Kevin too. <laughs> yeah, it's too hard otherwise. Like it's too confusing. It's funny because in our company, we now have two Tylers as well. And it's just like, it's just coming, it's becoming an overlook. Um, so K-Chan grew up, like, I mean, he was born in the US, but he grew up, uh, spent a lot of his childhood in Thailand and his favorite dish was like Tom Yum. And so we have that taste because we grew up eating like every single version of these like main dishes that like were part of our country's like uh, our pastime dishes and so we know like what flavor profiles we need to look for but we just have to reassure people that hey like you just have to trust our taste and know that even though we're using plant-based ingredients like we are authentically like asian americans who grew up eating this stuff and trust us like we know what is considered like good taiwanese beef noodle soup and what's good tom yum or like black garlic chicken um, we can't, we're not Japanese, but like, we've had so much Japanese food growing up. Um, both of us have spent time in Japan. He's done like a freaking ramen tour in Japan before. Um, and so that's kind of how we, we reassure folks, but yeah, I think it's like, it's important to be uniquely a you. Yeah. I appreciate that sentiment and definitely great shout out by Jing. I think being uniquely you, and we're seeing it so much more in these CPG companies and, and a quick side question here. You're a, you're a pretty big angel investor, I know. Um, mm. And I'm curious, like, based on the diligence that you perform in your angel investing, like, from an innovation perspective, um, like, what do you kind of, are, are there lessons that you've taken from other companies that are being, like, either uniquely them or just, like, positioning themselves for success? Yeah, it's so funny. I think what's interesting is, before I, I especially see this in like the quote unquote like global flavors, ethnic like, and per, you know it's, I guess specific to me like Asian American in like food industry, you are seeing this proliferation of Asian American food and beverage startups that are finally like on the rise now. And we we often talk about this where there was a generation before us, and that generation of Asian American food startups, um, or like ethnic startups they weren't able to, I think, lean into their identity as much because frankly speaking, there was a scarcity mindset where like there wasn't yet truly a market, I think, for like global flavors and this rise of like global cuisine. 
And there also wasn't like a lot of investors in the space. And so when they first came out with their brand identity and even just like these founder stories, they weren't able to lean into their heritage and say like, hey, this is like uniquely my interpretation of these foods I grew up eating. They instead tried to make their brands appeal to our more like uh, non-Asian audience that they thought that was the right path. And I think what's happening now is whether it is the rise of global flavors or what's happening in media influencing like people's tastes, I think you have folks like myself, you have folks like Jing at Flava Jing, um, Sarah over at Nguyen Coffee Supply, Danny at Boxu, Sandro at Sanzo, the uh, Kim sisters at um, Omsom, like all of us are really able to lean into our stories and we're not like, we're not like unabashedly like shy about anything. Now we're just like, look, we grew up as like with these, with Asian heritage, these are the flavors that we grew up eating. Maybe we have some unique interpretation of them, but like take it or leave it like this is us. And I think people have grown to like really love that. And fortunately the market has also grown where um, like Asian flavors are the fastest growing, like it is the fastest growing cuisine in the US now. Um, I think maybe you both have seen this stat, but on like Netflix, for example, last year, 60% of their, their global audience has watched some form of like a Korean movie or like, you know, drama. And it's probably because of the Squid Games. Um, but like, it's crazy because I, you know, it's, it's crazy. I, during COVID, I, um, my co-founder and I interviewed some of our customers and we were like, we talked with this like Caucasian teacher in her, I think it was, she was in her like forties, like living in the Midwest. And we were like, how did you discover Emmy? And she said that during COVID, she couldn't teach. The schools were shut down. So she was stuck at home. And when she turned on Netflix, Netflix kept serving her these like Korean dramas that she had never watched in her life one of them was called like crash landing on you and she said as she like got sucked into that show she kept seeing people eat like ramen and or like some form of these like noodles and she was like what is that and so she like went on google and she typed healthy ramen because she can't eat like unhealthy things and we were the first to show up and to me this was such a fascinating data point because this is like a prime example of how if things in media things in music movies hollywood shift um, and there's more representation, you're going to naturally see like consumer palettes and taste shift because they're just more aware. Like, I don't think people are ignorant. They're just not aware. And that's totally fine. And it's awesome to see people explore and try new flavors. I really think that's what Emmy is all about. Like we have this mantra, live boldly because yeah. live is really like that health aspect of like, yeah, you, you have to like make sure you take care of your body. And then like boldly is really like go explore, go try new things. And that's really what Emmy is about. And so- I've gone on a tangent here, but uh, that's no, 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 your no. answer. I think. Yeah. Yeah. You didn't totally go on a tangent because I think what's really helpful is like, I think from, if we, if we bring ramen back to the States, yes. Like in our probably circles, ramen is a very popular food, but there's also like a large part of America that probably has never had ramen or isn't exactly doesn't necessarily know what the flavor is or what the food is. And so I think to your point, like, um, media and have, has enabled this wider spread awareness of things that people might not necessarily know about. And what you guys are doing at Emmy is bringing it to the forefront with the health being like that pillar that enables like consumers to kind of latch on to something, something else. Exactly. I think we like a, a lot of people throw around like this term, like bridging cultures. I've seen a few like Asian American brands, like Boba Guys uses it, Sanzo uses it. And it is true because ultimately, like we, if again, like we could have just made like a traditional instant ramen, but 
I don't think that's going to move the needle because a lot of Americans these days, as they grow older, they just like, they can't eat that stuff anymore. And if I hope that one day we can introduce other Asian American products and like get people more aware of our flavors, they have to be interested in like eating the foods and become like loyal customers. And so I think that's what I've, me and my co-founder have always loved about starting Emmy is we are attracting such a, like a different wide audience across America who isn't just like, oh, look, it's another instant ramen. I've had like Maruchan and cup noodles growing up. Instead, it's like, oh, Amy, what is this? Like, oh, cool. Like they're doing all these authentic Asian flavors like Tom Yum. Maybe I haven't heard of that before, but because the base like noodles and seasoning packets are so healthy with high, you know, added nutrition, high quality ingredients, I'm willing to give it a try. And oh, wait, would it like, now I'm going to try this flavor that I've never tried. And the next time I go in a restaurant, maybe when I look at that menu, I won't be scared of that anymore. And I'm just going to give that a try. So there's ways of like slowly like incepting, you know, like, you know, the population in, in broadening their flavor palettes. Yeah. I feel like the way you explained how like some of these older generation brands like really tried to Americanize like as quickly as possible at scale, like Mario Chan is, is just, it's a really interesting kind of point of differentiation. Cause I feel like this next generation is so obsessive with emphasizing Asian heritage authentically which mm -hmm. is then actually like what I think the masses like buy into more these days at the end of the day with like a younger generation representing kind of more of the disposable income pocket um, available. So I think that's really interesting. I think one brand I admire in this space always has been David Tran's brand, like the, the spicy sriracha, Hoi Fong Foods. Oh yeah, uh, for sure. <laughs> they've, they've made it. I mean, they've been around for a long time. I, I don't know what I, I could imagine they're doing over a hundred million in revenue at this point. Um, much more it's great but I think like, no that's, marketing. A great, that's like a great north star where like i feel like he really stuck to this like vietnamese like bold flavor story for a really long time um you know mm -hmm. he still has like even the asian lettering on the bottle and it's like really stuck with the american population over time because i think people really think of it as an authentic asian flavor agree um, i think you like what you just said i i totally agree with that because it's like now with our generation, with Gen Z and future right. generations, it's like, it's cool to be cultured where it's almost like you, like, it doesn't matter if you're Asian, you're South, like, it doesn't matter what race you're, it's like, just be proud of your heritage and mm -hmm. like show that you like authentically and people are going to buy into that. Like it's, there's a very individualistic culture in America and it's, it's very unique because I, and I just came back from Japan where like, there are a lot of like unspoken rules that. I think a lot of society tends to follow and it's not as like you come to America and everyone's just like living their dreams and doing their own thing. But I think that's the beauty of this place. And um, I, that's why we say live boldly. It's like, don't be afraid to share that um, with the world. And then as you, I mean, as you build up this brand recognition, obviously you're heavily focused on ramen. I look at your friends at fly by Jing, right? Like they have these bold flavorings, um, but then they've also add, they added in dumplings eventually um, then there's other brands, right. That are really just obsessed with like one particular format. So I guess just as the brand scales and you guys become kind of the premium, better for you, healthy ramen company, is there a day where you capitalize kind of on the Emi brand and try to line extend into like other Asian kind of areas of like the cuisine aisle, or is this kind of a ramen company for the long term? That is an excellent question. It is something we've long thought about since starting this brand. I think we've intentionally kept like the brand name uh, more of a broad term. It's not like, for example, we're not called like Emmy Ramen. Um, I got, 
of course, I think my co-founder and I are going to think about other categories over time. However, as we've come to like learn more about the food industry and also just about like our own interests personally, we've come to realize that instant ramen is just such a big market. It's it's a $52 billion market globally, um, of which the US, I think, is around like $8 billion of it. And we've barely scratched the surface. Like we are on version, like we don't really say this too much publicly, but like internally we're like on version three, quote unquote. I mean, it's probably like, I don't even know, four V400 or something, but publicly it's like V3. And then um, we're just about to announce like another version of the noodle. And it's like, this is a never ending journey for us of improving the noodles, the flavors. We haven't even launched like beyond our initial three flavors. We're finally launching our first new flavor next week, actually. Good timing. And then it's going to be the first of like a new collection. So there's going to be three new flavors that are coming out over the next one to two months. And if you look at these giant instant ramen conglomerates like Nissin, which is the OG maker of the original, um, actually they, they invented instant ramen and the cup noodle. Um, they make something like $4 billion a year just off of like cup noodles. And that's because they just have so many freaking flavors out there. Um, sometimes it's, it's gone a little wild. Like they just launched this breakfast flavor, which was like a waffles and sausage flavor in the US. And I was like, I don't know if that was a stunt or a limited time offer, but I, I don't know if we're like going that direction. But I think like we can become like the best possible better for you instant ramen giant. Like, and that that really is like I think a mission we're working towards with as our core focus right now. So while we do have ambition, I just I don't think we like want to distract ourselves at this point with any brand extensions beyond instant ramen. Um, I think there's just so much more room to grow here. Yeah, I agree. It's it's such a massive category when you think about it. And then again, like you guys are bringing even new consumers into the category and then consumers who abandon the category for health reasons back in as well. So it's definitely a different approach. I wouldn't say like, yeah, you're disrupting like, you know, the incumbent, but at the same time, you're also creating incremental volume for the category as well. And um, going into- Can, can, we, can, we, yeah. expect a, can we expect some gluten-free flavors coming soon? For Rachel. <laughs> um, I think that the gluten-free- Specifically, I think the flavors is not an issue for gluten-free. Yeah, sorry, um, I meant noodles. But, well, I think, well, there is a distinction between both for sure, because I think some customers ask about both. I think the noodles is difficult just because a lot of the gluten-free ingredients tend to be very high in carbs. And mm. again, like, I think it it is such an important value for us internally to maintain that low-carb value prop, because again, like our families have just seen such high rates of diabetes and Metabolic health, I don't think is talked about enough. And I'm sure you both have interviewed a bunch of folks in that's maybe like the founder of Levels, um, Sam Corcos, or one of those co-founders. Um, like when we formulated Emmy in the early days, we actually wore continuous blood glucose monitors ourselves just to ensure that when we ate our product, we wouldn't be spiking blood glucose. And of course, we're not like insulin resistant, like diabetic patients, but we also did have diabetic customers across the nation send us their test results um just to see like okay what was the blood like what was the spike and there just was like barely any spike at all and we are effectively diabetic doctor approved it's not official we don't want to make those official claims but we have thousands of diabetic customers it's really important to us and yes we could sacrifice that to make a gluten-free noodle to like hit that percentage of the population but i don't think we're willing to do that at the sake of um potentially like causing these blood glucose spikes so 
to your answer, Rachel, I, I maybe one day, I think it'll be a far off like product roadmap thing. Um, it's not the core focus now, but I, I hope. No, like- I, I understand you guys need to stay true to your value prop. And I think, and I actually really do appreciate your answer because so many founders get stuck in like the CPG spinning wheel of trying to be something for everyone Mm-hmm. And rather than staying true to their core value prop and core mission, and I know like one of your core pillars is is this low carb principle. And so like you can't be something for everyone. I totally get it. And yeah. and I'd rather you be something for the people that can be rather than like, you know, me over here just just <laughs> Kevin, the only thing I'm looking for still, I want high protein low carb rice really badly and i I can't eat chickpeas so i can't eat the bonds and stuff uh um so so maybe you can just make that for us (laughs) formulate that i'm in and yeah that will be epic i think we we have talked about that i'm like oh man that is uh that's a hard one but um could be very interesting talk about a big category um all right fundraising so you guys just recently closed a 10 million dollar round if i'm not mistaken Mm-hmm. Um, could you, t- and it was read by, it was led by touch, right? And you've also had city and, and gold house and some other amazing investors on the cap table. Um, mm-hmm. could you talk a bit about the fundraising process kind of as the VC world was kind of coming to an abrupt, um, kind of fall off towards shakeout towards the end of last year. And then also just a bit about celebrity involvement, how you go about getting the right celebrities involved. Obviously it is a great PR driver to have some of the names like that you've had involved like Naomi and Usher. Um, but just talking through like, you know, is it a huge benefit to have those celebrities on? Can you ask anything of them to really help promote the brand or is it more of kind of optics or how, how do you kind of go about like that whole management process? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so let's start with the fundraise itself. So um, yes, we recently closed our series A um, led by Touch Capital um, with participation from a bunch of existing insiders and some new folks. We started that process late last year. Um, it was actually it was rough because I was getting um, I was getting married, and then like that same week, we were doing a bunch of diligence with a bunch of VCs, and it was just like really rough timing. I think fortunately, what happened was the market. I think started turning. I don't remember the exact month. It was probably around like October, November was when we, I think people just started noticing the fundraising environment was starting to dry up. Um, And I think it wasn't as bad in food and beverage as it was in tech. Tech just had already, they were paying such high premiums and multiples versus food and beverage investors typically have always remained fairly diligent about like, you know, a certain band of like multiples. So I actually think Kiva at Selva like talks about this a lot too. And he's like tweeted about, um, how like food and beverage just like hasn't been as affected, but, um, it was, you know, I think I haven't really talked about this publicly. I will say that like in the beginning of the fundraise, things were flowing pretty smoothly just because we've, we have grown really, really well, um, since launch, there is just like what I call insatiable demand for this product, just because instant ramen is still a product. A lot of Americans love, they just want a healthier version of it. And I think like the first 90% of the round was done fairly quickly, but as we started entering those later months, we noticed like, yeah, wow, the market really did slow down and it's almost like pulling teeth now just to get that last 10%. So it did end up stretching like, um, like, I think it was like 
late August through, and then we closed around like late December-ish, if I remember the time frame. It wasn't horrible. It wasn't like the worst for like a Series A. I know some stretch out much longer, but this year, what I've seen is, yeah, yeah, like it's definitely much harder. I I still spend a lot of time coaching uh, founders in the space um, in food and beverage on how they can approach fundraising. And I've just noticed that a lot of the traditional like larger VCs um, are have tightened up considerably. I think if you look at some of the folks out there, like the Stripes groups of the world, um, or like Valor Equity, some of those firms, even like the L Catterton's. Um, a lot of them are just becoming a lot more picky where they will probably honestly like just discount a lot of your D2C growth, um, knowing that like CPAs are just increasing consistently now. And uh, I mean, they always have been, but it's even more, ever more apparent. Um, and a lot of these firms are just focused on, I've noticed on like retail uh, where they are looking to see like signs of velocity across natural conventional. And it's just funny because I think you both probably have seen this, like the venture world is going to oscillate back and forth. One year, they're going to tell you, all we care about is D2C growth. One year, they'll tell you, oh, we care about omni-channel marketing, or sorry, omni-channel growth and whether you have retail presence. And then now it's like, oh, what are your unit, unit economics? Do you have a path to profitability? Um, I, I don't really have like a clear answer. I just think like, find your channel of growth that is like unit economics profitable for you, ideally like contribution margin positive on first purchase, like if you're D2C, if you can get there, props to you. It's very difficult right now to do that. And retail, I don't know how I feel about that because we expanded to retail last year and it was tough, like in not, tough in the sense of it was a skill set our team did not have. Um, we had we didn't know anything about retail. And so you have to like spin up a retail team. You have to learn all the lingo. You have to figure out what all the trade spend means, what all the chargebacks mean. And it's a lot of work for a founder who doesn't have that knowledge going in. So I always tell people, I'm like, don't listen to what invest, like just because an investor says, oh, you must have retail. It doesn't mean you need to do that. Like just grow the business at the pace you feel will help you like sustain, grow a healthy fundamental business. And don't worry about like looking at other industries where everyone's like, oh, you have to grow 5X or 8X year on year. Food and beverage is all about establishing a strong foundation. Um, and like having those bridges to like gross margin improvements over time, releasing SKUs that actually make sense and fit your customer base's needs. Um, and then you like, you go deep before you go wide. Don't just like expand to every single door just because they're giving you an opportunity. You have to make sure you're moving velocity in the accounts that you're in. Um, this is all like basic stuff. I think like I'm just repeating over and over, but I think my main point here is I came from the venture world. I spent several years in it. And as soon as I became a founder, I just realized a lot of the advice I used to give as a VC was complete BS. And I'm I'm saying this because like I was that person and I didn't know what the hell I was talking about because I wasn't a founder. I didn't like, I wasn't in it every single day. And now looking back, I'm like, wow, God, like if I were a founder listening to my own advice, like I probably would have killed their company. Um, and I'm okay admitting that. And that's why I'm okay telling founders now, like just you have the, the most knowledge around your own business. I think where VCs are generally helpful um, they can give you best practices. Like they, they have that bird's eye view. They have a 10,000 foot view. They can tell you like, okay, this is how I would recommend you build an org structure for like this function, because this is what we've seen repeatedly across every company, but everything else, like you have the intuition. That's why you started the company. So, you know, leverage, like lean into that. End my rant. <laughs>
Oh, I didn't answer your question about celebrities. Um, celebrities are interesting. I think for Emmy, we have ve- we have always been very cognizant of advice from like a. So we, I think we were very fortunate in our earliest rounds to take a lot of like founder and CEO investors. We really respected the industry. So like folks like you know CEOs of like or founders of like RX Bar, Thrive Market, um, Kettle and Fire, a lot of these brands that you hear about in the space, and they've always been like wary of, of celebrities because we have, we've all heard it. Like celebrities sound great on paper. They're great for PR. Do they actually do anything after that? Probably not. So like if I had to go into pros and cons, like I think one, like you, you hear this advice a lot is like definitely find the celebrities who are aligned with your product, aligned with your company who actually care. I think for us, like People might look at, let's say, like a Kygo from our seed round. They'll be like, okay, why did you take Kygo? That doesn't seem like that seems kind of random. Well, I don't think a lot of people realize this. Kygo, the way he started as a musician was he started on SoundCloud and he built his own community. Like he did not go for like working with like a large, I don't even know what you call them, like rep, like media agent or whatever, and like have them distribute you. He built his entire audience from a grassroots perspective where he just became one of the largest artists on SoundCloud with his own community that when he finally like, you know, like launched on like Spotify or whatever, his, you know, it just grew to like a billion streams right out the gate. And why we loved that, like, hey, yes, we do like his music. It's great. But I think it's like, if you look at how Emmy started, we grew off of the backs of like a community that we started. Before we even launched our product, we had a we had an email waitlist of thirty five thousand people, and we had thirty eight hundred people in this private Facebook community, and they were all Emmy evangelists. They gave us buy in on like what flavors to produce. What they gave us feedback on the design of our packaging. They were the first ones to like go fight for us in the ad comments, like even though we didn't ask for them to. When we launched in retail, they went to all the Whole Foods and they bought the entire shelf, including the packet like the boxes that the package packages came in. Um, we had like buyers and people being like, oh my God, like I had this customer come to like the checkout aisle with like 10 boxes of your Emmy and like they literally bought out everything. I need to like restock. That's so important for any brand. Um, you look at brands like Midday Squares and how they're building their community. So we really admired that. And I think that's the type of like celebrity we want to align with because their way of growing, their way of cementing that community love is very similar to how we did it. And then if you look at like our current um, round now, um, Naomi Osaka, she, you know, it was, she grew up in Japan. She plays tennis for Japan, even though, you know, you see in America, she made that choice. She is super outspoken about like her heritage and generally just like civil rights. And these are things that like, it's very clear she is leaning into like her identity. And it's also fun to see her discover her identity. I think she's so young. She doesn't yet truly know who she is. And she's very outspoken about this, where even if you go on her website, like she refuses to be pigeonholed into, I'm just like a famous tennis player. She's not like she is a fashion icon, right? She is like, she's a children's book author now. And she just, she has her own like um, line of skincare. So she is defining who she is. And that's very much like this existential crisis that a lot of us face now, like in our generation, like my parents did not have that privilege. They cared about survival. They gave me the privilege of thinking about like my identity and my purpose. 
And that's what me and my co-founder have really channeled into Emmy is like, we are trying to find our identity through these foods that we produce that are both Asian as well as American. And it's really inspiring to be aligned with an industry legend like Naomi, um, who is discovering her, her own identity. Same thing with like Usher. A lot of people are like, whoa, Usher, that seems like very out there as well. Like, yes, he's an R&B legend, but um, a lot of people don't realize this, like Usher actually is, he's been on and off a plant-based diet for many, many years. His mother um, runs like a food nonprofit and his children, like one of his children is a type one diabetic. So he is very much like passionate about like our product because we are like friendly for diabetics. And it's just like, I mean, instant ramen is a food he actually ate a lot growing up as well. And he like eats it with his family. So it's just like a lot of these things you don't realize about celebrities, like they are people too, but we at Emmy vet every single one of our investors very, very carefully um, because it's like, it's our, it's a company we built. We want to be proud of the people who back us. We want to be proud of the product we serve to the world. And frankly, like, I want to be proud. I, I say this a lot. I tweet about this, but it's like, it, when I have children and grandchildren, I want to be proud to tell them that we built this company in a way where we were proud of like every single decision, every step of the way. And that to me is what success looks like. It's not about business or financial success. It's about, can I come out of this proud of like my character, the people who I surrounded myself with, the team we built, the customers we serve, the product we built, that is true success. Um, so yeah, that's, that's, that's how I think about it all. Your intentionality is like truly remarkable. I, Daniel and I talked to so many founders and people in this space, and I think, a lot of times people get wrapped up in, you know, the flashy things or the pretty colors or whatever it is. And I think it's really, really nice to hear how intentional you are with like every piece of the brand, whether it starts with flavor or innovation or the people that are sitting around your table. So it's really, it's really remarkable. Um, Thank you for saying that. Yeah. yeah um, we like to ask all of our guests how they subscribe to wellness. So what mm. are some things that you do on a daily, weekly, monthly basis to be able to show up for Emmy and your family and friends? Yeah, I do a couple of things. I think um, general health standpoint, like I try to work out like at least five days a week in the mornings, alternating like cardio, weightlifting, kettlebells, so on and so forth. I love my Peloton. Um, I think like, you know, most of us at this point have like very generic, like cliche, like health routines in the sense of like, I have my eight sleep. I love my eight sleep. Like I wake up in the morning, I take my multivitamins. Like when I go to sleep, I have like my magnesium glycinate. Me too. Um, <laughs> nice. Uh, I don't, you know, I drink my protein powder in the morning. I haven't drank athletic greens in a very, very long time. My wife still does. Um, I, you know, we'll go to Remedy Place here in New York, um, at least like once or twice a month. Um, we just did it this past weekend. So I did the lymphatic massage as well as the hyperbaric oxygen chamber. Um, these are very like first world sounding things, which is why sometimes I'm like, oh, I don't know about that. Um, oh, you know, we, we, we like, we've heard crazy. <laughs> don't even, don't yeah. even. <laughs> uh, that's hilarious. Um, and yeah, I think from like, a like outside of like the health part of like the wellness stack, like I think. One thing I do a lot is, you know, on, on Saturdays, I still have like my weekly reflections. Um, I have like a whole document that I go through um, where it is my form of like self-therapy in a way. Um, I just gets, lets me get my introspective time in. It lets me think about like, like I have my gratitude sections because I'm horrible at self-gratitude. Um, 
where I'll like, you know, write about things I'm grateful for, for the week, like people who gave me a lot of energy, things that I accomplished, things that are like holding me back. Um, so I do that. I have an executive coach who I meet with twice a month. Um, he helps me work through a lot of, he's not even like a coach. Honestly, he's my therapist at this point. Like I talk about so many insecurities with him. Um, cause you know, at the end of the day, we're just like children walking around in adult bodies with all our childhood traumas. And so I just try to resolve a lot of those. Um, cause it's, it's something I didn't appreciate when I started this company with my co-founder is that a lot of these traumas do hold you back from that self-development. And then if you don't grow as a leader, your company kind of stagnates um, because you will push a lot of those insecurities into the rest of the organization. So um, I strongly encourage other people listening to this, like get an executive coach. It sounds crazy when you're a founder who has like, you're just starting out, you have no revenue. You're like, oh my God, that's unnecessary burn. But I've come to realize it truly is an investment, not a cost. Um, and all the times I've like thought like, okay, maybe I should like, turn off this cost and stop working with a coach. I feel good. I like, I do a session and I'm like, oh my God, now I understand why I still do this. Um, so highly, highly recommend that stuff. Um, outside of that, I'm trying to think if there's any other interesting things I do that have been helpful. Yeah. Do like a continuous glucose monitor at least once I would highly recommend it from like levels or any one of the other providers. Like it just gives you such good insights. I used to hypothesize that, you know, um, starchy foods, like uh, white carbs made me like gave me food comas. Now I know for a fact that it spikes my blood sugar like crazy. And it's why I like pass out after I eat any meal during lunch. So that's why I love Emmy. Like partially it's like, I, you know, we kind of created this product also for ourselves. I can eat Emmy. I don't get the food coma, which is amazing. Um, so yeah, that's some Payton of my stack. Point, eat more Emmy. Got it. <laughs> you, you, you don't need to, but just like, I would say, yeah, you, highlight is you like, can't help it. You can't help yeah, it. I can't help it. I, I truly do <laughs> love the product. I, I eat it a lot. So amazing, Kevin. Well, thank you so, so much for your time. Uh, we love this conversation and I uh, can't wait to uh, have some more Emmy soon. <laughs> thank and, you so much for having one me. One more. Where, where can our listeners learn more about Emmy? Uh, you can find us on our website, emmyeats.com. I wish we had emmy.com, but it was just a hard domain to acquire. Um, and you can find us on like, online platforms like Thrive Market, GoPuff, um, as well as in retail. So Whole Foods, Wegmans, Fresh Market. There's a few other major retailers we're going to be announcing in a couple of months that I can't share just yet, but keep a lookout there. And then you can find us on our Instagram, Emmy Eats. Amazing. Awesome. Thanks, Kevin. Thank you so much. Today's episode is brought to you in partnership with Athletic Greens. I started taking AG1 because I wanted to see what the hype was all about. Now, I literally can't miss a day. It's the first thing I put in my body every single morning. As someone who suffers from IBS, AG1 has completely improved my gut health and allows me to have sustained energy throughout the day. And since I'm always on the go, the travel packs make it so easy to stay consistent wherever I am. Love it. I've personally been taking AG1 for a while. And as someone who lacked a multivitamin routine, AG1 has been the perfect product to mix into my morning routine. Truthfully, I was a skeptic at first as I'm with most supplements and vitamins, but I've felt noticeably better at the start of morning workouts and definitely have seen an improvement in my digestive health. I tend to mix my AG1 with two tablespoons of lemon juice and coconut water, and it's delicious. Right now, it's time to reclaim your health and arm your immune system with convenient daily nutrition. It's just one scoop in a cup of water every day. That's it. 
No need for a million different pills and supplements to look out for your health. And to make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash STW. Again, that is athleticgreens.com slash STW to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. Thanks everyone for listening to today's episode. Feel free to rate, review, and share the podcast. And of course, don't forget to subscribe to Wellness. If you'd like to sponsor us, please see the supporter link in our podcast bio. We hope everyone has a great rest of week filled with wellness, and we'll see you next time.